This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, Planning Committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Prostate Cancer Screening that's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. In 1817, English physician George Langstaff described a fungating tumor of the prostate. This was likely one of the earliest recognized cases of prostate cancer. It was still several more decades before prostate cancer was confirmed histologically. That discovery was in 1853 by Dr. J. Adams. Dr. Adams was a surgeon at the London Hospital and treated a 59-year-old man with a tumor of the prostate which had spread to the pelvic lymph nodes. He died three years later. Dr. Adams called this disease very rare, although we know now that prostate cancer is actually very common. In fact, in the United States, after skin cancer, prostate cancer is the most diagnosed cancer in men. And interestingly, the incidence of prostate cancer seems to be related to the Western lifestyle, as rates are much higher here than in Asia. The link doesn't seem to be wholly genetic either, because men move from, moving from Asia to the West have increased cancer risk. Practicing here in the United States, one out of every eight men will have prostate cancer. And it's deadly too. Prostate cancer is the second most common cause of cancer death in men after lung cancer. So we as clinicians need to know when and how to screen for this very common form of cancer. To teach us about this important topic, I've invited one of Ohio State University James Cancer Hospital's urologic oncology experts. I am pleased to introduce Assistant Professor of Urology, Dr. Sean Dason. Sean, welcome to MedNet. Thank you, pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for being here. I'm so excited to hear more about prostate cancer screening because there seems to be quite a lot of controversy related to it. Overall, do you think we are over screening or under screening? 
I think a bit of both, honestly. Um, we're really over-screening maybe men above 70, um, while we're under-screening high-risk populations, young men, black men, those with a family history. I'm gonna get into this, but I think the answer is certainly both. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, Sean. We'll dive into the talk very soon, but before I begin, I wanted to let you know about our website, which we recently revamped. It has all 120 of our webcasts available to view at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can also find our slides there and log in to get your CME credit and your ABIM MOC points. If you prefer to listen to our audio-only podcast, you can search for that under mednet21 CME on your preferred app. Please also send us any questions about any of our programs using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast player. Now let's get started. Sean? Well, good morning, and thanks for kind of listening to my talk on prostate cancer screening. I think there's a lot to tell you in 2023. So just to start with a case presentation, you have a pretty routine situation. A 45-year-old healthy black male presents for their annual uh, health assessment. He really has no symptoms that might suggest prostate cancer, and he has no family history of cancer. Should we screen this man for prostate cancer? So the objectives of my talk are really to talk about what prostate cancer screening is, how should we screen for prostate cancer, and the who, when, how, and where should we screen for prostate cancer. So the first thing I have to say is prostate cancer is important. Uh, other than skin cancer, it's the most common cancer in men. It's the number two most common cause of male cancer death. And in 2023, we had nearly 300,000 cases and 35,000 deaths attributed to prostate cancer. The most important thing to know about prostate cancer is it's a big spectrum. You really go from you know, incidental prostate cancer detected on autopsy actually in the majority of older men, uh, all the way towards fatal prostate cancer that as I mentioned is a very common cause of cancer death. And somewhere in between is really where we hope to intervene uh, to prevent the fatal prostate cancers. So, um, the higher risk ones, that's really where we're focused on as clinicians. And we really want to try to figure out what we can do to impact the treatable and fatal cancers. And within this category, we have a variety of different things we can do. We can prevent them, we can screen for them, diagnose them, treat them, and help with survivorship. And that's really the focus of a prostate cancer clinician. Today's talk is mostly about screening, but just rest assured there's a lot of other aspects in what we do to kind of address this clinical concern. Now, as part of screening, I think the other big thing is we're really trying to turn a blind eye to the incidental and the indolent prostate cancers. This is where prostate cancer screening has gotten a lot of a bad rap recently in that there are a lot of prostate cancers that are not destined to be fatal. And so to get into screening, I think you really can equate screening to PSA testing. Pretty much most prostate cancer screening in modern times is with PSA testing. And really, I'm going to go over the history of it because I think this explains the context of prostate cancer screening in America in 2023. So uh, a lot of modern PSA screening is largely based on certain key events. In the 1960s, um, you know, the human prostate was identified to have unique antigens, and uh, Phlox published a cortical paper on this. You know, they kind of then identified a unique antigen in the semen um, published by Hera. Uh, Ablin 
discovers PSA specifically in the early 70s, and that was kind of the origin. So this has been around for a while. Wang and Chu then go on to improve our understanding of PSA and convert what was a you know, predominantly lab-based discovery into optimized clinical testing. And this is you know, basically in the late 70s, the early 80s, where we start to develop this into a clinical test. And finally, in the late 80s, Stamey publishes a clinical report on the use of PSA in the New England Journal of Medicine. And really what this you know, report describes is a correlation with stage and tumor volume to PSA and a correlation of PSA with uh, treatment response. And here you go within a few years of this you know, correlation to FDA approval of PSA for the early detection of prostate cancer and a number of non-randomized studies that support its use. And this really kind of spreads like wildfire. Um, you have widespread screening and widespread treatment based on a pre-screening paradigm into the 90s and onwards. And so what has PSA done? Well, when you look at epidemiologic data uh, on the bottom axis here, you can see, you know, 1975 to the mid-2000s, where I kind of gave you the outline of, of how PSA came into being, um, you really see in the light green above huge spikes in PSA, in, uh, sorry, prostate cancer incidence, um, coinciding with the onset of PSA testing in the early 90s and onwards. Um, and so, yes, PSA testing really did increase the incidence of prostate cancer. And you can see this kind of happen quite dramatically here when PSA came into being. Now, I think what is also really important and is often kind of thrown out with the overall debate of prostate cancer screening is that we've seen deaths from prostate cancer have um, on a population normalized level uh, since the onset of PSA screening. And I mean, if you're talking about a very uh, big cancer here. That's, that's a lot of lives that have, um, I guess, not um, perished from prostate cancer. So now we can't attribute all of this to screening. There's a lot better surgery, there's better medications, there's better radiation, there's better biopsies and risk stratification and imaging. But models predict that at least 45 to 70 percent of this reduction in mortality can be attributed to screening. And you know, you can debate the numbers, but a significant proportion of this related to screening. So I think you really have to then consider that PSA testing has profoundly impacted medicine. Um, prostate cancer is the most common you know, cancer in men and the second most common cause of cancer death. And models estimated that you know, 45 to 70% of a twofold reduction in prostate cancer mortality relates to PSA screening. So why isn't this the end of the discussion? You know, what's the problem? Why not just do it? Why are we even talking about this? And so I think that, you know, we now have to talk about the other side of the coin, um, the overtreatment, the overscreening that's been happening. And so really when you have in the 90s, uh, you know, the FDA approving PSA testing for the detection of prostate cancer, I think you really have to focus on what the data was for that. It was non-randomized studies, smaller studies, single institution studies that were really a correlation of PSA with prostate cancer risk. And... Um, very reasonably through this era, there was, I guess, the USPSTF recommendation that there was a great eye or insufficient evidence for PSA testing. 
Um, and I think a lot of this uh, that created some challenge in people's understanding of how to apply PSA testing was that there's a huge difference between the incidence of prostate cancer and the number of patients that die of prostate cancer. Um, as I mentioned, prostate cancer is a big spectrum. You go from incidental detected prostate cancer that never is destined to cause a clinical problem all the way towards fatal cancers. And that gap is really explaining the difference between the incidence and mortality, all of these incidental and indolent prostate cancers. And so the problem with screening is that in the 90s and the 2000s, we were detecting prostate cancer. We were not really differentiating between the incidental, indolent, treatable, and fatal cancers. And we were effectively treating all of these men the same in the 90s and 2000s. Um, and so that also has had a big and profound impact in medicine in that uh, we were treating a lot of men that were never destined to die of prostate cancer with expensive and toxic treatments without a high level of evidence for their benefit from said treatments. And so, you know, that's the other side of the problem in the 90s and the 2000s. Yes, we were seeing a mortality reduction, but we were also seeing a lot of overtreatment. This brings us to 2009, when two major randomized screening studies were reported in the New England Journal of Medicine. And here, you can see a table describing the studies. Um, the PLCO was the American study, and the ERSPC was the European study. Uh, both of them had, you know, a large number of men in the age range that were concerned for prostate cancer, and they were screened for PSA, uh, kind of, as well as rectal exam to look for prostate cancers. And what the PLCO found was that PLC, uh, PSA screening had no impact on prostate cancer mortality in an American population. The ERSPC, or European study, found that prostate cancer death was reduced by, I guess, one death for 1,410 men screened and 48 men treated. Now, again, I'm going to kind of emphasize this was what we knew in 2009. The landscape has changed a lot, which we'll talk about, but that was what we knew in 2009. Uh, kind of revelatory findings from two large screening studies in the New England Journal. This uh, caused a lot of, I guess, uh, uproar in that maybe we certainly were over-screening, over-treating men without a great uh, kind of mortality benefit demonstrated in these studies. It prompted a lot of uh, societal changes in guidelines, namely the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, to change PSA screening um, to a grade D recommendation where the harms outweighed the benefits. And they really did this without regards to age, race, family history. And it was predominantly based on the PLCO study done in the United States. So that decision in 2009, which many people, you know, that have been in practice for a while may be familiar with, was really based on the following, I guess, uh, you know, scale you can see that the ERSPC said, well, you need to screen a lot of men, treat a lot of men to save one life from prostate cancer. On the counter, you have a more relevant geographic study in the U.S. saying that there was no survival benefit. 
uh, you've got 2 to 4% risk of sepsis from a transrectal biopsy being increasingly recognized as a concern. And you've got a lot of men with erectile dysfunction and incontinence and psychological impacts and bowel issues and et cetera resulting from the treatment of prostate cancer. And so the benefits were really not, I guess, seen to outweigh the harms of screening leading to that grade D recommendation um, in 2012 or so. Now, when the screening, I guess, was recommended against, we certainly saw a huge decline in prostate cancer incidence. Uh, we have many studies now showing that screening, biopsies, diagnoses, everything that you know, uh, kind of follows screening was reduced following these 2012 recommendations and even more pronounced in high-risk groups like African-American men and those with a family history. Now, the challenge with the Preventative Services Task Force is it was a predominantly epidemiologic and primary care focused body that made these recommendations. And a lot of us, I think, in clinical practice had a different perspective on the data, had a different understanding of the changes in our practice compared to, I guess, the eras of the study. And there was very little, I guess, urologist, medical oncologist, radiation oncologist representation in understanding these recommendations. And those of us who dealt with the disease on the other end had a lot of concerns. Um, I think that we started to see that the incidence of aggressive cancer declined by 25% when you stopped screening. And so what happened to these undetected cases? Uh, prostate biopsy series started to show higher rates of more aggressive disease and we wondered, can these patients still be cured? Uh, metastatic prostate cancer increased dramatically. And we wondered if this related to changes in screening practices and how these non-curable patients that are often much more likely to be symptomatic would um, kind of alter the survival of prostate cancer in the modern era. Now, I think a lot of these concerns gained momentum in the mid-2010s, um, but the biggest and most important thing was a recognition of some of the flaws in the PLCO study. Now, the PLCO study was a study that randomized men to yearly PSAs versus usual standard practice in the U.S. in the era of the study. And so the usual standard practice in the U.S. in the era of the study was PSA screening. And so we were really randomizing men in that study to routine PSA screening versus PSA testing done ad hoc. And what we realized was that 90% of the men in the control arm actually had a PSA test before or during the study. And so what that means is that the control arm is contaminated 90% of the time with the actual screening in the main study that was used to kind of say that we shouldn't screen men for prostate cancer. And so I think by 2019, when people were looking at this again with the concerns in the population of at-first prostate cancer outcomes starting to become really prominent, uh, we had to really disregard the PLCO study because when you're comparing two groups that are really the same, it's obvious that you may not find a difference with the intervention. The other thing that I think became really important as time went on is that the European study in prostate cancer screening started to look better and better. 
With 16-year follow-up, we were seeing that number of men screened to reduce one death from prostate cancer reduced from 1410 to 570, and the number of men uh, treated a bit of change in nomenclature to 18 diagnosed because we started to understand that active surveillance or non-treatment of low-risk prostate cancer is very appropriate. And so the study started looking better and better. This caused the USPSTF to revise the uh, former recommendation against prostate cancer screening to a current recommendation of shared decision-making on prostate cancer screening. Now, I think in 2023, we have even better data surrounding prostate cancer screening. A number of other studies have reported. You can see here in the table, the ERSPC pilot was a study done independent of the ERSPC in Europe uh, before the actual trial itself, and it has longer follow-up because it was done before. The Jotaberg study was done in Sweden and actually is another independent study. And ERSPC Rotterdam is a sub-study of ERSPC, but has reported some independent results with longer-term follow-up. And in these really well-conducted studies, we're starting to see that the number needed to screen to reduce a death from prostate cancer is somewhere between 100 and 600, with between 16 and 22 years follow-up. Now, when you look at the number needed to diagnose to reduce a death from prostate cancer, these numbers range from 3 to 18. And this is actually surprisingly consistent with some of the long-term up to 30-year treatment studies we have of prostate cancer that if you treat, you know, let's say somewhere between 5 and 10 men with clinically significant prostate cancer, you'll reduce their risk of death. And so ultimately, I think we're getting accumulating data that there is at least uh, some role for prostate cancer screening in our population. Now, the other thing is that we are really, really concerned about the effects of the recommendation against PSA screening in the early 2010s. Um, since 2010, the incidence of metastatic prostate cancer has increased by 5 to 7 percent annually. Huge increases for a cancer that we were seeing improve in terms of outcomes before that. The other parts of this when we're thinking about every decision in medicine being a kind of balance between risks and benefits are that the risks of screening have also, I think, gone down. We are routinely using an MRI to risk stratify patients with an elevated PSA nowadays. We know that that reduces the number of biopsies we're doing. We know that that reduces insignificant cancers, and we know that we're increasing our clinically significant cancer diagnosis rate by using MRI and subsequent fusion biopsies. We're also using additional biomarkers to risk stratify patients, which can reduce the number of biopsies and incidental cancers diagnosed, and we're doing biopsies increasingly via routes and with antibiotic regimens that have reduced the risk of sepsis from historic rates of 2 to 4% to less than 1%, maybe even close to zero when you do it with the transperineal route, which is becoming much more commonplace in the U.S. nowadays. So the final part of this risk-benefit equation is that treatment by 2023 has also changed dramatically. We have multiple large studies that now show appropriate patients, key point there, appropriate patients, 
have a clear benefit to treatment. The SPCG4, which was recently published with a 27-year follow-up randomizing men to surgery versus watchful waiting for prostate cancer, showed a market reduction in adverse prostate cancer outcomes. The PROTECT study is also showing lower rates of metastatic disease in a pretty low-risk population. And additionally, we are finding that active surveillance has become effectively our standard for the low-risk and indolent prostate cancers, and in um, many situations is effectively what almost all patients with a low-risk cancer are managed with, and hopefully will eventually be disseminated to become the case in most or all settings. Surgery and radiation advances, on the other hand, for patients that need treatment continue and significantly reduce morbidity. So, the other part of this is that we're starting to understand that earlier screening of younger men is very important. We're probably going to move the needle in prostate cancer by focusing screening on those in their 40s rather than their 60s and 70s. We've started to understand that a baseline PSA in one's 40s is highly predictive of prostate cancer mortality. For example, if your PSA is above 1.7, you know, which we mostly consider a pretty low PSA, but you're in your 40s, your chance of dying of prostate cancer in your lifetime is probably nine times um, what it would be otherwise. And the vast majority of deaths uh, from prostate cancer actually are in those that have a PSA above the median. And this relationship is especially strong for um, men that are, I guess, uh, of high risk, including African-American men and those with a family history or germline condition. We also, I think, are starting to recognize men at high risk as being those that we really should focus screening on, uh, even though we don't have clear, large, randomized trials in this population because they're probably not going to be so feasible. Uh, African-American men, we know that their incidence is 60% higher. Their death rate from prostate cancer is double. There are many socioeconomic and other disparities of care that are present in this group. And I think this is a critical group to target and be aware of when it comes to screening and shared decision-making. Those with certain germline conditions like BRCA2 in particular, as well as Lynch syndrome, are at a two to six-fold increased risk of prostate cancer. And these prostate cancers tend to be much more aggressive. And um, certainly those with a family history, whether it's in a father, brother, or even extended relative, but specifically the first-degree relative, um, have a much higher risk. And so these patients were really, really not represented in screening studies, but we know that they have, I guess, a much more um, aggressive prostate cancer concern. And I think that if you're having a shared decision-making, upfront and frank discussions on the lack of data in these groups for screening, but the higher risk known to be associated with this demographics, uh, are really critical. So when we look at principles of a good screening test, um, this was kind of, you know, I think uh, a set of uh, uh, principles come up in the 1960s by the World Health Organization. We really know that, firstly, a disease has to be important. Um, I think in this case, it's the second leading cause of cancer death in men. Clearly, prostate cancer is important. We know that a disease have to, has to have acceptable treatment, and I think that it's pretty well accepted that many prostate cancer treatments are kind of acceptable with their own set of side effects. There has to be a reasonable access to diagnosis and treatment. 
and we certainly do have that in the United States for many patients. Um, we have to have a recognizable early stage and I think here we clearly have improvements in our understanding of what is an indolent prostate cancer, when should we pursue treatment versus surveillance, and so we're really getting there in this kind of domain. We have to have a suitable test, and I think that although you can talk, you know, and fill a textbook on the limitations of PSA, uh, it is still a very easily accessible test that we know saves a lot of lives. You have to have an acceptable test, which, you know, when we're coming to PSA as a straightforward blood test and we're talking about MRIs and biopsies that I think are increasingly acceptable to patients. We have to understand the natural history of prostate cancer, which again is improving. We have to have an agreed upon policy on whom to treat as patients, which I think in our more recent guidelines, we are really, really making efforts and, and have uh, come to a reasonable consensus. We have to have acceptable costs, which I think are generally reasonable. And finally, you know, understand a continuous process. So I think uh, we're really meeting a lot of the principles of a basic screening test with PSA nowadays. And so I think that the general overwhelming change in the last decade in the data to support um, a reduction in what we thought uh, in 2009 of the harms of prostate cancer screening and the benefits of prostate cancer screening um, has really led to most societies to encourage this being a shared decision-making approach. Um, when I look at this, I really think that the most progressive and uh, kind of open-minded societies are, for example, the NCCN, the AUA, um, because they're moving the screening into the men's 40s and they're really emphasizing younger screening rather than older screening. And because they have, as you can see on this slide, an understanding of high-risk groups where screening may start even as young as 40, including those individuals that are black, those that have a family history, and those that might have a germline predisposition. Because I think if we're really going to move the needle on things, um, focusing on earlier screening in one's 40s and 50s is where we have the best and most overwhelming data for a benefit of treatment. And in these high-risk groups specifically, we know that they have a high rate of mortality compared to patients at average risk. And so I think focusing here where we will never have a randomized trial that is appropriately conducted, powered, um, is, is where we can really move the needle. And so ultimately though, what is critical in all of these recommendations is the term shared decision-making. I think when you conduct shared decision-making, it's an upfront and honest conversation on what we know about the benefits and harms of screening. A lot of this is gonna be based on your own thoughts and your own understanding of the data. But what I really want to emphasize is that as a urologic and medical community, we know that right now screening has a survival benefit. You need to screen between one and 600 men um, to reduce death from prostate cancer. And you need to diagnose somewhere between three and 15 men to uh, kind of reduce death from prostate cancer. We're increasingly improving the harms of screening, but there are known defined harms of biopsy, 
psychological impacts of a, like indolent cancer being diagnosed. There are certainly harms of treatment and overdiagnosis that are still occurring, but um, understanding and recognizing the survival benefits of screening and treatment is critical in discussing shared decision making with patients. And a lot of that data is newer um, and uh, is something that I've just reviewed. So uh, when it comes to now the rectal exam, which is the other side of things, um, honestly, the rectal exam is probably just a footnote in prostate cancer screening. We really don't have data to show that it's beneficial in the screening setting. I think it's optional. Uh, you know, occasionally there'll be somebody that says, well, the rectal exam is critical because I found a high-grade tumor in somebody with a low PSA. But I think that that's a challenge to generalize to overall practice. Um, and I think that, you know, I would consider it optional, but not the main part of screening, which is really PSA testing at this point in time. And so for practical recommendations to kind of close out my talk here, I think that we really want to um, discuss screening in younger men starting your 40s. You can continue into your 70s, but I think well beyond 70s really, you know, where we start to see more of the harms rather than the benefits of screening. Uh, I would personally stop at 70, but um, somebody with a good life expectancy, family history of longevity, those are reasonable to continue into the 70s. And really, I would discourage continuing beyond 75 or 80 because this is where we start to see the harms of screening, the overdiagnosis, the overtreatment for what may not be a fatal prostate cancer. I think your interval can really depend on your risk or how it can be incorporated in your practice. You know, we don't have great studies to say that one year is better than four years. Some of the screening trials have kind of extended things out to four years, and that may be a very reasonable interval. I think that the benefit is just seen by doing it. And you really want to be more vigilant in those at high risk. Um, black men, those with a family history, especially in a father, a brother, those that have that family history come about at a young age that was metastatic and perhaps fatal, uh, consider screening strongly in those men. And those with a family history or personal history of a germline condition like BRCA2 or Lynch syndrome, which are known to be uh, certainly associated with prostate cancer. You want to consider the effect of some medications used for treatment of prostatic hyperplasia, namely finasteride and dutasteride, finasteride also being used for uh, male pattern baldness. You want to double PSA in those men. It may actually mask what an elevated PSA is. We really want to repeat a PSA test that might be abnormal in four to six weeks if it's elevated. Um, you know, it's like flip of a coin that that may come back to normal, actually. False positives are very common. And you want to avoid um, kind of, I guess, acting on one PSA in and of itself. You always want to consider false positives and not test PSA testing in an acute urinary tract infection or recent Foley catheter placement. So to come back to the case, um, I think the key point here is, you know, young black man, if he has prostate cancer, you could save his life by finding it. Um, consider shared decision-making on PSA testing. Discuss it before you do it, as well as the rationale and the limitations. Um, decision aids certainly have been studied and can be a very valuable use of, um, I guess, your time 
to not have that conversation uh, so directly. Um, but certainly shared decision making is currently, I think, a very reasonable recommendation in the clinical scenario. The other thing is you really want to consider what your uh, practice pattern of local urologists, when they want to see these patients for referrals. I think that in general, this would be a very reasonable um, kind of uh, set of cut points. If somebody's above two in their 40s, you really want to consider referral above three in their 50s and 60s and above four in their 70s. Um, that referral may not prompt any action, but certainly you know, the urologist on the other end can look at them a little bit more closely, can consider risk stratification with an MRI. And on my end, a lot of the time, this doesn't prompt a biopsy right away, but these are how a lot of clinically significant prostate cancers may come in. And so I think that having a you know, reasonably low threshold to refer, but on the urologic end, a higher threshold before a biopsy is probably optimal care. So thanks for listening to my talk and uh, hopefully we'll get on to some interesting questions here. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sean. That was wonderful. And um, a lot of information I didn't know before, including the cut points that you pointed out on that last slide there. So first of all, in terms of referral, when you say we should be referring, are you talking about to just a general urologist or to a urologic oncologist? I think that Prostate cancer and elevated PSA is a large part of every urologist's practice. Mm -hmm. For the most part, I don't think that somebody with an elevated PSA test needs to see a urologic oncologist. Uh, we specifically focus on, I guess, complex cases and the treatment of cancers that have been diagnosed. But I would say any urologist is going to be a real expert at characterizing PSA testing. And in fact, in a lot of models nowadays, a lot of these may be seen by urologic nurse practitioners as they kind of work in conjunction with urologists, for mm -hmm. example. And so, yes, every urologist in America sees elevated PSA and assesses that. Okay. And, um, you know, you mentioned repeating the PSA. How common are false positives? Do you see them pretty frequently? And should we repeat before sending to urology? I think false positives are one of the real challenges with PSA testing especially if you're a little bit of a novice with it, but understanding how to, I guess, interpret false positives once you continue PSA testing for a while is really gonna be pretty straightforward. The first thing is, yes, repeating the PSA test is critical. Pretty much half the time, we know this from large prospective studies, an elevated PSA may come back to normal. I see it all the time, somebody will come in with a PSA of 20, Maybe they had urinary symptoms at the time of that draw. Maybe they didn't. We repeat it in the clinic. It's totally stone cold normal after a bit of a scare. And so I think that repeating a PSA test, you know, a month after an original elevation is a very, very good first place to start. Um, I think that that can be done on any setting, whether it's the primary care end, and certainly I would hope it's done on the urology end if it wasn't done before that. Sure. Are there any specific instructions we should tell our patients before they get that second PSA drawn? Such, you know, you mentioned there are things that can cause some false positives, such as urinary symptoms or other things. Are there like certain foods that they should avoid? I've even heard um, some things like bicycling mm -hmm. or recent ejaculation could elevate the PSA. So are those things that we should counsel our patients on before drawing a repeat? 
So the first thing I do want to make a point, the, the comment that I had about urinary symptoms was mostly to say that you shouldn't test it in the context of an infection. Mm -hmm. And sometimes somebody may have exacerbated urinary symptoms and that could have been an infection, but it just wasn't tested. A lot of these men may have baseline urinary symptoms with age and that's just going to be something that, you know, is part and parcel of testing a PSA in a man in their 50s. So the big part about the urinary symptoms is we just really want to rule out an infection as mm -hmm. in an acute exacerbation. I think that's the most important false positive if I were to emphasize one false positive to avoid. Okay. The rest of these things, there have been studies that might show a little bit of an elevation in a PSA test, let's say with an ejaculation, with a bike ride, but honestly, a lot of the time it may not be practical to give people all these instructions and it may not be reasonable to say, well, your PSA test was elevated possibly for that reason, you know, let's disregard it. I think, honestly, most of the data for some of these lifestyle things say that the PSA test goes up and down by like 0 0.3, 0 0.5. Mm -hmm. And we really don't even consider that a blip in the whole spectrum of PSA testing because big changes are like up and down, one, two, three, or doubling. And so I would say, yeah, ideally you want to avoid ejaculation. Ideally you want to avoid you know, any trauma to the prostate, whether that's instrumentation, whether that's bike riding, whether that's intense activity in that region. Um, ideally, you must avoid a urinary tract infection, um, but you know, in general, repeating it and just making sure you've co covered the UTI, you're probably fine. Okay. Now, are the thresholds dependent on where the lab is drawn, like your institution, or if you're using a private lab? Um, should we be looking at the reference ranges for the lab, or is it pretty much a standard threshold, um, irregardless of where you have it drawn? I would probably just have your own personal thresholds, and wherever it's drawn, you can keep that consistent. For the most part, we're going to be using very similar PSA assays across all modern labs. They're going to be fairly reproducible, and the reference ranges that they report to you are not really relevant to you in the context of the patient, where you should consider their age, their prior PSA histories, perhaps if they've had a workup, etc., and um, certainly their risk factors, including their race, family history, potential germline conditions. So I think you should have your own numbers for people where you would consider it elevated and you would consider a referral and the lab ranges that are reported to you are not going to be too relevant. And you can consider between labs the assays being fairly reproducible such that you don't have to change you know, your own mindset based on where you're getting the test done. Mm -hmm. So should I have a higher, or sorry, lower threshold for a patient at higher risk, such as a black male? I think you definitely should, at least for referral. Um, now, I think that that can be in a couple of different ways. One is perhaps in your shared decision-making discussion, you should have a slightly, um, I guess, more optimistic perspective on screening in the hope that that will benefit them because their risk is higher. I think that you can also move that into the earlier setting. Uh, we have data to support screening probably for men as young as 40, and that's consistent with the AUA and NCCN recommendations. And finally, you can consider perhaps a lower threshold for referral. For example, if somebody is 40 with a PSA of 1.5, the median PSA in that age range is something like 1. Mm -hmm. And so they're well above the median. We know 
from a number of different studies that perhaps they are at a higher risk of dying from prostate cancer at some point in their lifetime, that may be somebody either you choose to follow a little bit more closely or choose to send for an early urologic referral to keep an eye on closely. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that they need a biopsy at that age with that PSA, but certainly as that starts to increase, as it starts to get even higher above the median, it may come into a discussion of, hey, maybe we consider an MRI and maybe we find that potentially fatal cancer earlier. Okay. Now, what about uh, the changes in PSA over time? How much attention should we be paying to that? For example, if someone's PSA changes uh, or doubles over the course of a year, does that automatically ring alarm bells even if they're below the cutoff threshold? I think that's a really uh, well-studied um, kind of topic that's gone on and off for the past couple of decades, the PSA velocity. Um, we really, I think, don't have the best data to support that, and especially don't have the best data to say that it's best for the screening setting. I think we know that, yeah, if your PSA is increasing at a more rapid clip, it probably does have a higher degree of concern compared to a totally stable PSA. But it's really hard to interpret that in the context of the nat uh, natural variability that a PSA will go through during kind of routine lab testing. And it's also really hard to interpret that in the normal PSA range. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I would say, for the most part, I would discourage consideration of the velocity in the screening setting. But if there's somebody that, hey, you're kind of quite concerned about, they have risk factors, and their PSA is increasing at a faster rate than you would kind of really expect, um, referral is always very reasonable. So I think that it's a judgment call, but I wouldn't kind of disseminate the message that velocity is a great idea to use in the screening setting. Okay, perfect. Now, how good is the PSA? We've been focused on that, but um, how good is it? Is it like how, like, how often will it miss cancer? Well, I think on a population level, it's the best we've got. And if you compare it to other screening tests, it's pretty good. You screen 300, 500 people with a simple blood test, you might reduce one death from prostate cancer. Uh, but are there cancers that will be present with a normal PSA? Absolutely. In fact, you know, 6% of men with a PSA under 1 or 2 will have prostate cancer, just with how common prostate cancer is, and some of those will be clinically significant. I think that at the end of the day, you have to kind of just realize that PSA is not going to pick up everybody. It's a screening test to reduce its kind of effect in our population of prostate cancer kind of you know, mortality, but um, if you have signs and symptoms of concern, if you have a kind of especially high risk, if you have an abnormal rectal exam, um, if you have symptoms of metastatic disease, prostate cancer should always be in the conversation, even with a potentially normal PSA. Mm -hmm. Now, um, with shared decision-making, you had mentioned that some of these studies are even looking at kind of four-year PSA screenings. How do we counsel patients or, you know, what are the things we should be thinking about when discussing the interval to screen someone? I think the best way to phrase it is we don't have the data to say that one year is better than a lengthier interval. And in fact, most of the data is probably in the two to four year range. Mm -hmm. The difficulty is that on a practical level, thinking about things you know, beyond a yearly interval when it comes to blood tests can be difficult to keep up to date depending on how you practice, depending on your setup, and there's probably not a harm to doing it on a yearly basis. So I think that if it's very reasonable for you to keep track of it, to do it every four years and for that to be reasonably consistent, that's probably just as good as doing it as 
you know, frequently as every year. And so I think that I would phrase it as there's probably not much of a difference when it comes to overall risk of death um, when you're looking at a one-year approach versus a four-year approach. But whatever works best in your workflow. The other thing is that it's a shared decision-making approach. A lot of patients just feel really, I guess, reassured when they get their PSA every year and it's normal and it's just one of those things that they take their box on like their cholesterol and their HbA1c mm -hmm. and some patients don't care. So that may be another part of the conversation uh, because we don't have a, hey, this is best. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, now, you know, you mentioned you know, some organizations recommend earlier screening as early as 40 even. Do you know if that's covered by insurance? Will that be a problem? Uh, in my experience, at least on the cancer end, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines are considered a very uh, appropriate guideline set to use for um, insurance coverage. In fact, for most cancer treatments that we have, if it's in the NCCN guidelines, uh, we'll be able to get it covered. Mm -hmm. Every now and again, we get a peer-to-peer -peer or something like that, but honestly, it's kind of rare if something's in those guidelines. And recommendations um, as low as 40 for somebody at high risk are um, in the NCCN guidelines. So I think that um, we probably shouldn't have difficulty with insurance coverage if it was something I, I think that was, um, I guess, giving us difficulty it really should be a very um, seminal reference to say, well, it's in the NCCN guidelines to cover it as young as 40. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, yeah, that, that certainly is on your side. Now, the other kind of challenge is that the guidelines do differ and somebody could come back with you saying, hey, at the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force level, we're not starting at 40. But the counter to that would be specifically in that they might say there's limited data under the age range that they recommend and that there is no data in men that are black or men that are um, with a family history, which is really where starting at 40 is consistent. So it might make more work in that it might mean a peer-to-peer -peer or something like that, but mm -hmm. I think that you have great footing in the NCCN guidelines and the AOA guidelines supporting this to get that covered. Okay. Um, now, in terms of types of testing, you mentioned rectal exams are pretty much optional. Are there specific situations where you would still recommend a rectal exam? I think that anybody with an elevated PSA, part of our baseline workup is to do a rectal exam. And so that's, I think, a good kind of option to um, consider. Like, for example, if somebody has a highly elevated PSA and you know, you're thinking, hey, I'm going to repeat this in a month, it would be very reasonable at the time that they have an elevated PSA to do that rectal exam because if you feel that prostate and it's a rock-hard prostate with great abnormality, you may not choose to wait a month. You may choose to send them on right away and have the urologist repeat it, for example. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, similarly, you know, if somebody's having some urinary symptoms, their PSA is up, you examine them, hey, prostate is really tender, pelvic floor is really tight, that might very well be prostatitis explaining the symptoms. So it's part of your clinical assessment of an elevated PSA and urinary tract signs and symptoms. But I think that where I would say it's optional and probably the data to support it is not so strong is in the screening setting. For mm -hmm. somebody with no symptoms, for somebody with average risk, that PSA is probably the way to screen them and the rectal exam is not so contributory. Okay, now other than PSA, are there any other screening options or is anything in development? I think I would just say at this point for the general message, PSA is really the one to go with. Um, 
in development, we'll probably at some point use a variety of different other tests. We'll probably incorporate risk calculators. We'll probably use MRIs. We'll probably use polygenic risk scores as part of, I guess, somebody's overall risk assessment in addition to the clinical factors. A lot of these things have been studied or are being studied. Um, but right now, at this point in time, I would say that that stuff is not ready for prime time. You really want to go with the PSA test. Mm -hmm. Now, going back to your case, the 45-year-old black male, um, let's say he had some family history. Now, does it matter what age his family members had prostate cancer in terms of your recommendation for screening? Well, I think that just based on um, his race, I would recommend screening. Mm -hmm. But I mm -hmm. think that the shared decision-making conversation incorporates a lot of the different factors that I guess you're putting forth. Um, we know that when it comes to family history, the number of family members that you have with prostate cancer, the relationship, as in father or brother more so than grandfather or second cousin, um, the age of that prostate cancer, let's say under 65, the severity of that prostate cancer, let's say metastatic disease versus localized disease, all of those are going to play into an individual's prostate cancer risk, whether it's that's of having clinically significant disease or of having fatal disease. And so if we're saying that, hey, the way we approach prostate cancer screening in 2023 is with shared decision making, then you put everything on a balance scale and you say, well, you know, I'm concerned about you because you're black, your family history suggests that you have a higher rate of prostate cancer being present or even death from prostate cancer. The harms are such and such, but you really have more, I guess, potential benefit than harms, at least in, let's say, the clinician's impression. So I think that all of that plays into shared decision-making, but as a routine standard, um, would it change whether I would recommend it or not? No, because mm -hmm. I think they would meet it just based on, I guess, their race alone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, are black men more likely to have the more aggressive form of prostate cancer and less less likely to have like an incidental or indolent type? Uh, the answer is yes, and that's a complex answer because is it because they are black? Is it because we are seeing that screening is happening um, perhaps less intensely in black men? Is it because of socioeconomic disparities, et cetera, that they're presenting later? Uh, this is a complex question that mm -hmm. I think many researchers are looking into and working on. Mm -hmm. But the short answer is that yes, it is a risk factor. And the other thing is that um, you know, black male is a very heterogeneous group. And we know that some populations that are, I guess, um, of exceptionally high risk, some populations that are maybe more, um, I guess, population level risk. And so it's not something that I think we can always um, put an overall perspective on. But I think certainly that is one of the biggest risk factors we have. And because of that, it is the one most consistently incorporated in the guidelines and considered as part of age thresholds and short decision making aspects of things that um, I would strongly consider uh, I guess, being a little bit more focused in screening for. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, last question. Screening is great. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm so happy that we had this discussion about screening, but is there anything we can advise our patients to do to help prevent prostate cancer? I think that's a difficult answer. Um, people 
will be looking at things on TV, they'll be reading about things, everybody says something prevents prostate cancer. When these things were actually studied, there have been no studies that have demonstrated that something non-pharmaceutical can clearly prevent prostate cancer. In fact, vitamin E in the 90s and 2000s was one of the things that people really thought would prevent prostate cancer and it was commonly used. When they did a study, it actually increased prostate cancer risk by about 17%. And so I think that you kind of have to be cautious with making recommendations about what may or may not prevent prostate cancer and cautious with interpreting some of the marketing and other things about these prostate cancer supplements. Uh, there are a couple of pharmacologic, I guess, interventions that can prevent prostate cancer. Finasteride and dutasteride have been studied in the prostate cancer prevention trial and the reduced trial. Uh, respectively to kind of look at their ability to do this. They do prevent overall prostate cancers, but there may be a signal that high-grade prostate cancers were present more commonly in the groups that were treated with these medications. And so at this point, I would say the field doesn't believe that they prevent prostate cancer. And there's actually, last I checked, an FDA kind of warning about the potential increased prostate cancer risk with these medications used for chemo prevention just because they saw a signal towards higher grade disease. So long and short of it is, no, we really can't prevent prostate cancer. I think the best thing we can do is prevent prostate cancer death with screening. Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, Sean. We're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point. Sean? I think the key point is screen for prostate cancer with shared decision making in men at risk and this will really improve prostate cancer outcomes in our population. Thanks for joining us today. For our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us again next week with my guests, Dr. Julie Teeter and Trent Hall to discuss addiction, stigma, and person-first language. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.